Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, we'll dive into the life of Tim Sweeney, the founder and CEO of Epic, though, frankly, you probably know him better as the guy behind Fortnite. The journal Sarah Needleman actually just published a big profile of Tim Sweeney, and we're going to hear a lot more about it. Later on, my interview with Kyle Weens, the CEO of iFixit, about these so-called right-to-repair laws that might change the way you buy and use your gadgets. They've been around forever, but they might be real sooner than you think. But first, after last week, I swore we wouldn't talk about Facebook this week, but somehow we still have to talk about Facebook. This week, Facebook launched the new Facebook money thingy that we all kind of knew was coming but didn't know much about, and now we do. It's called Libra, and it's kind of an amazing combination of all the buzzwords in tech right now. It's cryptocurrency, it's on the blockchain, Uber's around for some reason. Basically, Facebook is trying to create a new digitally native kind of money that's more stable than Bitcoin and can actually be used to buy stuff. And it's trying desperately to convince people to use and trust Libra, which means using and trusting Facebook, which is not easy to do. Here with me to discuss, Joanna Stern, who hopefully understands this better than I do. Christopher is on vacation this week, which is incredibly rude. Um, Joanna, are you ready to talk about Facebook more? Are we ever going to be done with Facebook? I mean, no, but also I don't understand this. So I hope... Okay, good. (laughs) You do. No, I don't. This puts us on precisely the same page. I, I have uh, never really realized how little I understand about like the actual mechanics of things like Bitcoin and the blockchain until I was trying to read about Libra and realized I just, I know what they are sort of in the abstract, but I don't really understand anything about them. So, I think the fact that you're calling it the blockchain probably tells us all we need to know about your oh, knowledge no. of this. <sighs> well, this is unfortunate. Um, okay. So let's, let's, get somebody on here who can actually help us here. Uh, Anna Maria Andriotis, who's been covering Facebook's crazy crypto crusade, uh, is hopefully around and going to join us and explain what in the world is going on. Anna Maria, thank you for being here. We were just talking about how confused we are about what is going on. So you have you have a lot of explaining to do. Uh, I hope you're ready. I will do my best. Okay, good. Uh, for decades, the way that people, at least in the US, have paid for stuff has largely revolved around cash and cards, debit or credit. Facebook has essentially come out with um, a payment option, a new payment option that could possibly disrupt much of that. So specifically what we're talking about here is that Facebook has uh, announced finally this creation of um, its cryptocurrency Libra, um, which will essentially allow people to make payments using a stablecoin. That's where we begin. People will be able to use this, uh, uh, to use Libra to make online purchases with participating merchants. What we're talking about here is a digital currency. So you basically, from a consumer perspective, uh, you would download a digital wallet. The digital wallet uh, will be called Calibra. This is also going to be the subsidiary name uh, that Facebook has created um, for this whole project. You download Calibra on there, you buy Libra, those are the coins. Um, and from there, you buy stuff with merchants that are essentially enrolled in this. So on the one hand, this seems like this wildly complicated technology. But on the other hand, I feel like you just described Venmo. 
like the the it seems like the the if the spectrum here is like one US dollar which is sort of the the simplest most straightforward most stable thing all the way up to I don't know bitcoin which is this like very complicated decentralized totally unstable wildly fluctuating thing like where on the spectrum is is libra supposed to be it looks like it's somewhere in the middle of that spectrum okay what has been said uh, by 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 um, our sources by Facebook is that this isn't something that's intended to be a volatile type of currency. Essentially, um, it's backed by hard assets, by a basket of government currencies. Essentially, um, people load in money; they get the equivalent of that in in these coins in Libra, um, and uh, it, the whole thing is governed by this association made up of a number of very well-known companies, uh, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, et cetera, um, that are supposed to bring stability to uh, the payment flows here. And um, so I, I would put it somewhere in the middle. It seems like on the one hand, Facebook is the perfect player to do this because it's so big. It has so many users who are using its apps that even if no one except Facebook users ever uses this, it could be like the titanically successful uh, currency or on the flip side, it's Facebook. Nobody trusts Facebook. Facebook has a huge problem keeping user data private, which is a, a crucial part of how you deal with finances. So like I don't know. Is it the best and worst player here? Yes, for the reasons that you mentioned. One of the when we first reported on on this development back in May, my colleagues and I were trying to figure out why. Why would fa- I mean the thing about payments? It's it's very finicky, right? So like the worst thing to do in payments is to create a payment option that does not solve a problem. So for example, uh, why have mobile wallets in the US not taken off? Because what's the difference between people pulling out their card from their pocket to pay at the point of sale versus the phone? It's the same movement. You're not really solving a problem. So so what problem is this? is Libra solving? In developed nations, I, I don't, I have a difficult time seeing what problem it's solving. Now, in its announcement this week, you know, Facebook could talk about how this is meant to also address economies with underbanked people um, and, and, and allow for financial solutions and payments there. What, what's happening here, at least as, will this thing take off in the U.S.? That really remains to be seen. I, one of my first questions for my sources back um, uh, weeks ago was, why? Why is Facebook doing this? Like, why not do something that's a little bit more sort of a payment option that consumers are more accustomed to? And I was told that fate that Facebook said that it didn't want to go down that that path, that it just wanted to go in in a disruptive way and do something that nobody else was doing. Do, do you have any info from your sources, or I, I don't think I've seen it in the reporting, but how long Facebook's been working on this? What we've been aware of and what we've reported is that it's, it, that it's been in the works for um, more than a year. Right. And just to answer a lot of your great questions, is the reason Facebook's doing this, the things we've been talking about for more than a year, and you know, David, I'm very sick of talking about it on the podcast, all of the privacy issues, because it all leads back to ads. Facebook makes sure. so much money on ads. And 
Mark Zuckerberg said in recent earnings that that the, that the bottom line will take a hit because of some of the privacy changes and. We've had this other thing we've been working on for the last year, Wall Street. Look at this. But at the same time, if if you want to if you want to get into things that aren't about privacy and aren't about user data, currency and finances is literally the last thing you would want to do. But unless you use the word the blockchain and you talk about super secure technology and all of these things we're not going to know about you because our currency is going to be the most secure. Anna Maria, can you explain sort of how Libra is set up? Because I think the the very structure of like the organization that's set up to do this, I feel like it is sort of proving your point, Joanna, that Facebook is both wanting to make this a Facebook thing and trying to make very clear that like this is not a Facebook thing. It's a, it's a weird tension. Everything in terms of what is known at this point about how Libra will work, that was all Facebook concept. Um, Libra Association, which is supposed to be essentially like this governance sort of group for, for Libra, um, is comprised of a number of companies, big ones, many of them big ones at that, um, uh, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Uber, Stripe, Lyft, the list goes on. These companies are supposed to um, basically play a role in um, creating stability for this payment system, basically making sure that this is a safe system. So last week when we first broke the story about the companies that are involved here, one of the things that we were told was, look, it feels like Okay, so Facebook is is owning this thing. It's, it, it is its own creation. It is a Facebook product. It, it looks like in many ways it's going to have a big say in terms of how this all works. But it seems like with this Libra Association, all these companies, it's kind of offloading or trying to offload the regulatory risk that comes with this payment system. So, okay, real quick before we let you go, I, I do wonder, let's, let's separate this from Facebook really quickly because it, it does seem like this is the the first version I've seen, at least, of what people have been talking about really since Bitcoin came out, which is the idea of having one of these currencies that is stable enough to actually reliably purchase things with and that is sort of decentralized in this important way and is not tied to any government or country or whatever. Like, is this outside of the fact that it's Facebook and all the weirdness that comes with that? Like, it, does this feel like a moment in the the world of how we pay for things like is is that why everybody's signing up for this because this is kind of the thing we've been talking about for a decade this is definitely a turning point in some ways it's an acknowledgement that the payments we've long thought of as something that we have in our wallet in our pocket um and this is just further evidence that that is moving into much more of a digitized world and specifically on messenger type platforms, right? Where people Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time, uh, they engage with them pretty much every day. It's on their phones, obviously, which they're always walking around with. So to me, this is a turning point, not just that we're talking about crypto, a stable coin being used, used uh, for everyday payments, potentially, but the platform on which it's being made available. Um, and again, this I, I, there is no this is why the biggest payment companies have signed on, because there's been this sense that at some point there's going to be a shift and payments are going to move to a different platform. And we as 
as payment companies might not be needed anymore. So this will be the first real test because Alipay, WeChat Pay, obviously that's not something that's played out here. This will be the first test, at least from a U.S. perspective, of whether this new type of payment, both from a a platform where it's being made available, as well as from a crypto side of things, whether this will really take off. I was telling David that I saw this tweet yesterday from uh, Sarah James Lewis, who's, according to her Twitter profile, the executive director of OpenPriv, um, and obviously a, an organization focused on, on on privacy. But she tweeted, can't wait for a cryptocurrency with the ethics of Uber, the censorship resistance of PayPal, and the centralization of Visa, all tied together under the proven privacy of Facebook. It's the dream right there. I probably don't need to explain to anyone how big and important Fortnite is, but just in case. Uh, The game came out a few years ago and has already made billions of dollars for its creators, a company called Epic Games. Fortnite helped esports blow up, it helped Twitch and other games grow, it made celebrities out of its best players. Fortnite is like, it's like Harry Potter or Star Wars. It's this generation-defining cultural phenomenon. And the guy behind it all is the CEO of Epic Games, Tim Sweeney. Sarah Needleman, a reporter at The Journal, who's here with us now, just published a big profile of Tim that I think you've been working on for a long time, looking at how he and the company got here and where the gaming world goes next. Uh, Sarah, thank you for being here, and, and congrats on the story. So why why Tim Sweeney? What what was, obviously, Fortnite is huge, but why was he a guy you, you wanted to spend a lot of time getting to know? Well, I mean, with... Fortnite being as popular as it is, it's it's interesting to find out um, where did this game come from? You know, who made it? And then we're talking about a closely held company that's you know pretty private. It's in North Carolina, not where most of the game companies are, the the big ones. Uh, and he's uh, done some interviews, uh, for the most part, has not been very vocal. Um, and so I was very curious as to who this person was and uh, you know how this game came to be. And uh, I was also very curious about how the cross-play between the different consoles happened, uh, because that was the first that happened with Fortnite. And so um, there were just many, many questions uh, about the decisions that made in going to behind how this game um, was designed to look, you know, the lack of blood, the cartoonishness, all these things I wondered, were they deliberate or was it a happy accident? And so uh, I pursued the interview to get uh, some answers. Okay, so give us the quick background of Epic, because this A, this company's been around a lot longer than Fortnite, and B, it's always struck me as sort of a weird company. I mean, there's this amazing photo in your story that looks like the most sort of boring accounting firm office you could ever imagine. It's just like in a random place in North Carolina, and it's this hugely important company in gaming. So like what, give us the short version of the Epic story. Well, just so you know, inside the office, it's actually quite cool looking and there's these cool statues and there's a slide that goes from one floor to another. All right. Well, as long as there's a slide, you're okay. It has the Silicon Valley kind of vibe inside. And giant characters. Um, but uh, the scenes from one of the Iron Man movies was actually filled, filmed there. Oh, cool. Years ago. But yeah, it did start in 1991. Um Tim Sweeney started it out of his parents' basement. He funded it with about $4,000 he saved up from mowing lawns. And uh, he was in college at the time at the University of Maryland studying mechanical engineering. And he actually, um, he, you know, he started making these very simple 
games kind of like uh, Super Mario Brothers, like what they call platform games, uh, Jill of the Jungle, and um, the, you know he he and, and this is you know pre uh, mainstream internet, so he was doing something called shareware where. Uh, people can play a portion of the game through an online bulletin board. They might find out about it, and uh, they'd get most of the game for free. But if they wanted more, at the end it would say, uh, basically it would say, send a check to this address or call this number, and we'll send you the rest of the game uh, on a disc, for a floppy disk um, back then. And so um, over time, he is, his games uh, improved, and he started to make what's called an engine. An engine is the software that game makers use to, to make to make games, um, and so uh, early on he decided to create his own, and uh, he programmed it himself, and he made a game called Unreal, and he named the engine Unreal also, uh, and Unreal took off. It became very good. It was a shooter game, and at the time shooter games were relatively new, and um, it really caught the attention of other developers in the community who said, "Wow, this this game looks fantastic. The graphics are great. Like, how did you do it?" He's like, "Well." I used my own engine. And at some point, the light bulb went off in Tim's head and he said, maybe I should license this engine out to other developers. And so the focus of Epic ended up becoming more about this engine than uh, its own. It, it wasn't so much a game studio as it was this engine creator and licensor. So in the engine, just to just to clarify a little bit, the, the engine is basically like the, the sort of underlying infrastructure of a of a game, right? It's like the the code base that you then sort of build whatever you want on top of. You're, you're starting with this engine and the engine is full of tools, like almost mm-hmm. like a car shop. And you got all your tools there to make it. And some engines have certain tools and, and other ones have different ones. And um, some of the big, big companies like Electronic Arts and uh, Activision, they have their own engines. They, they keep them to themselves. <laughs> they don't share. It's, it's internal. Um, and then there's these commercial ones that anyone can use. And Epic's uh, Unreal Engine is one of those. Another big one is called Unity. Uh, that's the one that was used to make Pokemon Go. So these are um, engines uh, that the in- indie community rely on. But even some of the big companies sometimes use these too. And uh, they have different business models. Um, Unity, you, you pay up front, uh, uh, um, I believe, a monthly fee. Unreal, um, you can generally get it for free, and then you pay a royalty on your sales. Um Okay, so they're just chugging along, selling this, and and it was doing fairly well. And then all of a sudden, Fortnite takes over the universe? (laughs) There's a little bit of time in between because Epic continued to make their own games, too. They they still liked making games. I mean, they didn't just sell the software for making games. They used it. They ate their own dog food, essentially. And they made a couple good games, one of them being uh, Gears of War. That was a very successful franchise. They ended up later on selling it to Microsoft uh, because they didn't want to be in the publishing business. Gears of War, by the way, just just this is a pointless aside. Gears of War was the only game that was ever too violent for me, which which is a real achievement on their part. You could like curb stomp people and it was it was a lot. It was a very, very violent game. And then Fortnite, you know, is it is technically violent, but very, very different. Um, My threshold is way lower. <laughs> <laughs> like Pac-Man. That is really not violent, unless you count killing ghosts. But anyway, yeah. so Epic just plugged along, was making its own games, and it had a couple hits here and there. So it started Unreal, big hit, Gears of War, big hit, um, but not a lot else. And uh, Fortnite was just one of many games that they were experimenting with over time. Um, they were doing another one um, at the same time that they thought was going to be a big hit. That didn't work out. It was called Paragon. Um, uh, but Fortnite, you know, some I guess some, some people there thought it had potential, and they released it in July of 2017. Um, it was called Fortnite with a subtitle, Save the World. And it was, um, you were playing, uh, you know, a couple of friends were playing against AI, uh, and you're trying to defeat uh, zombies. 
And it did okay, but it just, you know, it just barely sold like a million units in its first couple months. For an indie title, not the end of the world, but really, by mainstream standards, total dud. And around that time, um, uh, the Battle Royale genre uh, was getting very hot. There was a game called Players Unknown's Battlegrounds that was super hot. And all the employees, not all the employees, but a lot of the guys at, at Epic were playing it and having a, a blast. And at some point, someone said, you know, maybe we should take the Fortnite Save the World. It's not doing so great. Let's use that IP and just create this mode, this Battle Royale mode, where it's 100 players get together, they fight each other until only one's left. And they already had the artwork. They already had uh, the, the basic code. They just needed to do some a little bit of work to make this new mode. And uh, they made this very uh, interesting decision to make it free. And that started to take off very quickly for a whole number of factors. But uh, that is the evolution of Epic in a in a brief nutshell. Okay, so and the, the universality is something you spent a lot of time talking about in the piece, uh, the the sort of war to get all this stuff on all these competing platforms. Like, what what's your sense of, of how that went? It sounds like Tim Sweeney basically spent months war calling Microsoft and Sony, basically demanding that they play together? Essentially, yes. I, I think he was a little bit um, more diplomatic than... Uh, <laughs> he, he's always... He strongly believed in crossplay for a long time. Um, and what he noticed with... Uh, Fortnite and other social games is that uh, people really enjoy playing together in these intimate groups and you could see it because people would link up in squads to play the game because you can play in, um, alone in twos or fours and uh, when he, you, they had the, the chat functionality and you could see people are talking and then once he started noticing once it was possible for someone to play on a phone and on a PC or a PC and a console the engagement increased um, dramatically so he said well if it's increasing from that, imagine if I can make it so that a person on an Xbox can play with someone on a PlayStation or play someone on a Switch. And I mean, it was just the data showed that it was already improving engagement. So if you add that to the mix, that you mm -hmm. could uh, crossplay between the brands, not just the devices, but the brands themselves, you would have an even bigger um, uh, potential user base. And, th and that's exactly what happened. They basically don't do any press, right? They, they, they're not very press friendly. Um, they don't. And originally, um, Mr. Sweeney did not want to talk to me. Was said absolutely no. Sorry, I won't do the interview. They very rarely put out press releases. They don't talk to police. Um, he's been known for doing occasional interviews, like at uh, industry events, like the Game Developers Conference. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes he'll speak, uh, and then afterwards he might take a couple questions on whatever topic he was there to speak on. But he's done very, very few interviews, uh, so there really wasn't much out there. And I kept going at him because I really wanted to talk to him. So eventually he started talking to me in email. He would answer some questions over email, and I, you know, I said I'd like to come down there. I'll pack my bags. I'll go on a hike with you. But kept saying no, no, no. And then um, at some point, I think I just <laughs> drove him crazy. And he said, all right, all right, girl, I'll talk to you. Um, and so we started talking. And then the phone calls. And, we, you know, I talked to him for many, uh, uh, a number of different interviews over time. Uh, and then I did um, finally have the pleasure of getting to meet him in person at E3 uh, last week. You didn't actually go with him on to the the campus. No, I, he, I was not unfortunately invited down to the campus and um, didn't want to just show up. Why uh, wouldn't he want to go on a hike with you? Why doesn't he want to go on a hike I, with you? I, I don't know, but he, he said many times that he just doesn't want to do press interviews. But yeah. at some point, I guess I just nudged him enough. The, I thought your story that you were saying before we, we were starting to, to tape here, but about how you called him once and he was just on a hike and you could hear birds. Every, like, actually, every time we spoke on the phone, um, he, would, he was very interesting because I'd ask a question and he would pause. Like for a good second or two, and on a phone call, one or two seconds 
Yeah. You wonder, like, are you still there? Yeah. But hear him breathing deeply, and I'd hear birds tweeting. And I said, Tim, I know you're like a hike. Are you hiking right now? Yes, I'm hiking in the woods outside my office. He said, I I think my best there. That's where he's clear thoughts uh, around nature. And I could see that. You paint him in the story as this very sort of simple guy with simple tastes who just happens to be worth $7 billion, but also a guy who had like a Lamborghini and a Ferrari. He's a He's an interesting man. Sometimes we treat ourselves to things, and I, I think he did that. I a treat lo- myself to a scooter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody has their thing. Um, I buy myself a $200 scooter. <laughs> he uh, He's definitely a workaholic. Um, he's been programming since he was about 11 years old is when he, he started. And he said it's his passion. He loves to program. He doesn't have as much time now because he's um, doing other responsibilities at Epic. And uh, that's his thing, programming and hiking. You mentioned at the end of the piece that uh, Fortnite is still gigantic and still really important, but is not growing the way that it once was. And in fact, it's it's shrinking uh, in, in many respects. Seeing a decline in terms of the estimated monthly revenue. Um, and the number of people watching other people play Fortnite on Twitch, uh, which is the uh, live streaming site owned by Amazon, very popular destination for people to watch um, video game play. It's still extremely popular. It's still um, the number one much watched game last month on Twitch and, and still bringing in a, a large chunk of revenue. And, and we could see things turn around. I mean, perhaps they have a new season that just goes bonkers and people come flooding back. But generally, most games, you know, even the biggest hits, they they reach a peak and then they start going down and sort of leveling off to, I guess, base user um, situation. Like with Pokemon Go, we saw that go wildly, wildly popular. It's still very popular today, not nearly as popular as it was in its heyday. And we'll probably see the same sort of tail off with uh, Fortnite at some point. So where does, I mean, you can't just release, you know, Fortnite 2. That's not really how it works. Uh so what what does Epic do now? Like, are they looking for the next big game? Like, what what's your sense of kind of what's next? Well, for I, I believe Epic has all this time continued to focus on um, you know different projects and whatnot. But a lot, of, I do believe most of their resources have been thrown into Fortnite. They've doubled their headcount since that game came out to about twelve hundred people. Um, and because uh, what they've learned, and, and and a lot of game developers learn when you have a hit, you're updating, you're adding new content to keep people coming back. There's always something new going on. That's taking up a lot of their time. But that said, uh, they are also um, launching a whole nother, they launched a whole nother line of business in December called the Epic Game Store. They're the Epic Store, rather. Which is a place you can buy other games, including the ones not from Epic? What you can do is you can buy PC games, computer games from the Epic Store. Um, or if they're free like Fortnite, you just download them. Uh, but it is new line of business, which we call distribution. That's Epic and Tim Sweeney's uh, next big thing. Uh, cool. Well, again, thank you for being here, Sarah, and, and congrats on finally getting Tim to talk to you. Uh, next time you got to go on a hike with him. We'll record him hiking for the podcast. I just don't know if I can keep up with him. He seems like a really good hiker. I'll <laughs> probably have to take him to the hospital and help me out because I, I'll just faint from... Will you borrow Joanna's scooter? Coming up in just a second, what right to repair means and why tech companies are fighting to keep you from being able to fix your own gadgets. But first, our weekly segment, Today I Learned, in which one of us brings some strange or weird or bizarre thing we discovered this week. Uh, I have one this week. Joanna, ask me what I learned this week. David, what did you learn this week? Okay, so I've been writing and reporting about waterproofing. Uh, I have I have this fascination with why all of our gadgets are not more rugged. Uh, and one of the questions I have is, why aren't they all waterproof? 
Um, and one of the strange things that I have learned is that we have these tests for how th- waterproof things are. You see these IP ratings and there's like IP67, which means you know, a certain amount of waterproof. And what I've discovered is that these tests, even if you pass every single IP test, your phone is still not waterproof. It could be like the most waterproof it could be tested to be. It could be the greatest. IP68 is like the best it could possibly be. And all that means is you can put it in water for a little while in a little bit of water and it'll be fine. And it's basically like you can drop it in a toilet and get it out and your phone won't be destroyed. And that's the best we test for. So the idea that you could actually like use your phone underwater to take pictures or get caught in a lot of rain and be fine, like all these things we just don't test for. And so uh, everything we we do, we rely on these companies to like self-report and nobody includes this in their warranty. If you get your phone wet and it breaks, you're screwed. Uh, that like we just have no system for actually rigorously testing how waterproof something is beyond this like very small, very basic thing. And I think that's really stupid. So isn't there a difference between though when you're saying waterproof, but most of the companies will say something's water resistant, right? Like Apple will say their iPhones are water resistant. They won't say they're waterproof. Right. So the, the, the tests that they run, I mean, and that's basically a way of like covering their own ass basically because because nobody will actually support their stuff water resistant lets them out of any problems that happen and and in the warranty it says uh apple is basically not liable if there's what what they call liquid damage uh so if your phone gets wet and dies even though it is rated ip67 and should not die in these certain situations even if it does apple will not cover you uh, but you're right. They, the water resistant is the phrase everybody uses for precisely that reason. And waterproof is a much higher bar that almost nothing actually clears. But so there are certain, like like you're saying, as part of the percentage of gadgets, there are waterproof, quote unquote, gadgets like uh, a housing for a GoPro, right? Is that not? That's the stuff that's actually, that's basically, that stuff is called underwater is basically the, the, the difference is the things that are explicitly designed to be underwater are the things that are actually waterproof. Uh, and those things are more protected and more uh, covered in things like warranties. A waterproof case, those horribly chunky big cases for your iPhone, right? There. Yeah. So I have a couple of those right now. There's one made by a company called Hitcase that is this like crazy complicated thing to get on and off. But it is waterproof and lets you use your phone underwater. Um, but if it fails, they don't protect they your phone. A, like a, a rate, like a test that they've like, we've put this thing underwater for 10 hours at this depth. Yeah. It's all like... It's like 10 meters or something, which is, I think, 33 feet down. I don't know how long. And this is the problem is everybody has different tests and different ideas about what it all is supposed to work. But the thing that surprised me the most is that the highest rating test is not very interesting and nobody covers this stuff in their warranty. So your phone is cool if you spill a glass of water on it is about as far as any of these tests will ever tell you. Uh, and even then it changes over time and it's just all these terms are meaningless and I no longer trust the waterproofing in any device that I have. You may remember that many years ago I spent a lot of time underwater with the phone. Yes. It was a great video. I probably spent like, I want to say that thing on and off had spent 
eight hours underwater. And I was shocked. The thing never went. It was fine. It was totally fine. And then I did the same, a similar video for the iPhone 7, which was one of the first. And it was fine. But Apple, again, we went through all the, like like you're saying, with the, the, the jargon. And they were saying, well, it's water resistant. We don't suggest that it could, like, survive splashes. But, like, this is not meant for scuba diving. This is not meant for underwater video. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the funny thing. Like, uh, OnePlus has a new phone that is very water resistant. But they won't say that it is in order to basically not... not be liable uh for if something happens because right in in the case like you're talking about more often than not you can do a lot of these things and your phone will be fine uh but you don't know and if something does happen you're not going to be covered because there's no way to actually test and certify this stuff beyond like the very simple things and if you get in a pool with chlorine or in the ocean with salt water it's all different so it's it's just i i've (laughs) i've come around to this idea of like nothing means anything are you really wrinkly right now uh no but there's been a lot of that. And we have a video shoot this afternoon that's going to involve a lot of me being wrinkly. It's going to be great. Are you going to be in, in a hot tub? Uh, yes. For I mean, ideally, all of my videos involve me in a hot tub. Uh, but but this one will, too. Cannot wait to see you in a hot tub. <laughs> it's going to be great. Uh, coming up next, we go inside the fight for your right to fix your own gadgets. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. This week on the floors of the New York House and Senate, two very similar bills are being debated on the same issue, the right to repair. On one side, you have those who think users should have all the parts and tools and information that they need to upgrade and fix their own phones, laptops, TVs, whatever else. On the other side, big tech companies who think only they can be trusted to service your stuff. The right to repair has been a long debate. Legislation for cars was passed in 2012, which is why you can take your car to a mechanic or fix it yourself without voiding your warranty. Now the fight is over everything from phones to fridges to farm equipment and even medical equipment. Kyle Weens is the CEO of iFixit, a company that helps people fix and upgrade their stuff. The company sells tools, it provides step-by-step guides, and generally acts as a resource for all the tinkerers and DIYers out there. He's a big right-to-repair proponent and has even been involved in some of the legislative process. So when we first started talking, I asked Kyle to argue against himself. What's the case against the right-to-repair? The only people opposing right-to-repair are large corporations. Humans generally are in favor of right-to-repair. And and the arguments that the corporations are, are using uh, when they when they talk with legislators, they'll, they'll say, look, if you could open your electronics, you might hurt yourself. Uh, there's batteries. The batteries have explosive tendencies. People will, will be hurting their, themselves. Uh, another argument, uh, making the information available will undermine their intellectual property. Maybe it'll make it easier for people in China to copy their products. So the first one sort of makes sense to me. I mean, I, I would think even if you could open up your phone and do stuff inside it, A, I don't think most people want to. And B, most people probably shouldn't. Uh, like I, I'm, I'm more sophisticated about tech than most, and I'm sort of afraid of the idea of opening up my phone and tinkering around in there. So, like, is that is that part crazy to you? There aren't really safety issues working on electronics. I've never heard of, of someone uh, hurt themselves uh, repairing a cell phone, and we help uh, over a million people a month do it. 
so there, there really aren't safety challenges, but, but where there are, the best way to mitigate that is to make the safe way of, of opening the device available. Uh, if you think about working on cars, there's lots of dangerous things that you could do to yourself in the process of working on the car that hasn't actually been a problem as a result of the right to repair laws that we have on the books for cars. Massachusetts passed all the right to repair in 2012 uh, and it's been going just fine. Uh, th there is a concept of personal responsibility that we have where if you do a procedure and you do it incorrectly, it, it's, it's on you. Okay. And I guess part of it seems to be the, the mechanic example is really interesting to me because it, it seems like most people are never going to want to fix their cars, but what, what right to repair gives them is the ability to take it somewhere other than the dealership to get it fixed, to have a person whose job it is to fix your stuff who doesn't work for the company that made it. And in the in the gadget space, that basically, I mean, it exists, but only in sort of unofficial, like guy who meets you at the mall and fixes your phone screen kind of ways. Right, this is a free market question. It's who has the ability to perform these repairs? Uh, I'll give you an example. Water damage on cell phones is something that can be repaired by uh, repair shops. They need access to information. They need schematics of kind of the city map of how things are laid out internally. It's the kind of repair that is it's, uh, very technical. It's very sophisticated. It's beyond the skills of what Apple or Samsung's repair technicians can do. The independent repair shops are actually better at those kind of repairs, but they can't do it without information. Uh, so you go into a repair shop and it will totally depend on whether they have gotten the schematic leaked from the factory in China, whether they'll be able to do the repair or not. Right. Because they have that information. It's not like the, the schematics for your phone don't exist somewhere. It's just that you don't have access to them. Right. Absolutely. They, they have this information. They're providing them to their repair networks. They just aren't providing it to the independents. And if you think of this from a free market perspective, you'd say, well, well, you're talking about regulating companies and requiring them to do something. Why doesn't the market just sort it out? Why don't people buy more repairable products? And and the answer is that markets don't work well when you get this indirect effect where people don't do a very good job at purchase time of factoring in repairability of electronic device. They're too focused on form factor and features and, and whether they're going to go with iOS or Android. Uh, this is the kind of thing that's like you know, energy efficiency standards. It's, it's better to sort of set standards across the entire industry and then let people innovate on top of that. Well, yeah, so that that's one of the things that I've heard over the years as pushback against repairability is that the things like swappable batteries or memory cards or making it easy for people to upgrade their own stuff makes the gadgets themselves bigger and bulkier and harder to make where people have proven over and over that what they want is these sort of sleek, beautiful one piece gadgets that like, are, are those two things sort of fundamentally at odds? Can you make an iPhone that's as nice looking as the iPhone we have that is repairable? You absolutely could. It, 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 there's, there's design trade-offs, uh, but it's, it's very possible. Apple has really talented mechanical designers. They could uh, make upgradable memory. Uh, you, you've, there are some cell phones where you eject your SIM card and then right behind the SIM card is, is space for a micro SD card, Apple absolutely could make it upgradable if they wanted to. Same thing with, with figuring out a way to make the battery replaceable. HTC is a really nice pull tab on the battery that, that makes it easy to open. Apple or Samsung could do that if they wanted to. It's just a matter of design priorities. On the spectrum of you know, no work, you just pop off the back of the phone and replace the battery all the way up to you need a professional to open it but it's easier than like voiding your warranty and running the risk of starting a fire. Like where do you, what's, what's your hope on the spectrum? Do you, where do you want this to kind of land? 
I think when it comes to consumables, something that wears out, that should be something that people can do without any tools at home. Uh, If you're spending $1,000 on a cell phone, it shouldn't be limited to 500 uses. That's how long these batteries last. 500 charge cycles, so complete charge discharge, and then Apple says you need a new battery. I'm using my phone up, phone's battery up every day, that's about a year and a half. I should be able to do the maintenance required to keep my cell phone working for more than a year and a half. Isn't it easier for most people that it's just $30 and you go to the Apple store and deal with it that way? But it's also a lot of effort. You know, you make an appointment, get down there. It's not $30 anymore. They, they doubled the That's price true. at 60 now. And uh, a lot of people are, are a long ways away from the Apple store. There's only 450 Apple stores in the world. 450 service centers cannot manage and install the ecosystem of more than a billion devices. Yeah, that's that's fair. So, okay, so we've had legislation on this, as you mentioned, uh, kind of over and over for a lot of years. I mean, in, in prepping to talk to you, I was sort of amazed at how many times this has come up over the years. Um, why hasn't it passed? Like, it's, as best I can tell, there is overwhelming public support for this. Uh, it doesn't seem like that complicated a thing to get right. Like, why hasn't this passed before? Uh, it has been entrenched uh, systematic lobbying on the, on the part of the electronics manufacturers, primarily led by Apple, but but Microsoft and others have been involved as well in saying they, they want to maintain the monopoly that they have on the service market. Uh, and if you look at auto right to repair, you know, it passed in Massachusetts in 2012, but it took them 10 years of, of, of trying over and over again before they finally were able to overcome the opposition of GM and Ford. So, and then and there's now there's legislation in New York, two different bills, I think, that as best I could tell, say very similar things. Um, right. You've got a matching bill or close to matching in, in both the House and the Senate. Got it. Uh, okay. And they're 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 debating it actively this week. Uh, we're, we're hopefully going to get a floor vote. And and the, the thinking, it seems like, and the, the hope is that by passing it in one state, you sort of de facto pass it everywhere because people aren't going to make different gadgets for New York than they will for the other 49 states, right? That, that's that's what we learned after Massachusetts, that, that passing auto rate repair in Massachusetts, after that, the automakers agreed to apply the Massachusetts law uh, for the entire country. And I think that's probably, I mean, states are the right place to pass this kind of legislation, uh, but but you, you want to avoid a mismatch of, of different rules in different states. Right. It feels a little bit like G- GDPR in that sense, that once the rules are passed, it maybe just becomes easier to follow all the rules instead of making different products to follow different sets of rules. Right. I think so. And we're already seeing signs. I mean, when I talk with manufacturers, they say, look, you've got bills pending in 20 states. This could happen any day now. Manufacturers are starting to stockpile parts to make them ready uh, to sell. Apple has started relaxing their service network and adding more people to their service program in preparation for right to repair passing. So the corporations that are smart are getting ready uh, for for complying with right to repair. So there is a sense that, that this might be the time. And if not now, then soon. Uh, if not now, then soon. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the one argument that I've found somewhat compelling about repairing stuff is that uh, is the security stuff that that we have uh, real reasons to want to not open up and tinker with the things that we buy because they're complicated and complex, and there are always lots of people trying to get into them that maybe. We shouldn't be messing with those after we buy them. Is there any truth to that at all? Is that just tinfoil hat nonsense? 
<laughs> yeah, this is what we call security via obscurity. In, in the software security realm, and I've got a computer science background, uh, what we have learned over time is that all systems have vulnerabilities. There are security problems in everything. And the best way to secure a product is to have more people looking at it. So anytime you have someone saying, well, we're not going to share with you how this thing works because it will undermine our security, that, that sh your siren should be going off in your head. That probably that means, means it's a bad product. Yeah, they, they, they know they have security problems and they're trying to brush it under the rug and hope nobody looks at it. Uh, there's a network of security professionals that launched a advocacy organization called Secure Repairs that is, that's advocating in favor of right to repair. These are a hundred of the leading cybersecurity researchers in the country, including uh, people like Bruce Schneier that are very respected. And they're saying, look, absolutely, this, this is something that we, we need. It will help the cybersecurity community perform their research, improve the security of these products if we have a little bit more information about how they're constructed. Okay, so it's like the, the idea then is basically if everyone can see it, they can also see and fix what's wrong as opposed to just hoping that no single person ever sees the bugs. Precisely. Look at this another way. Uh, if opening things up undermines the security model, the bad guys are already doing that. They're already capable of undermining the security model. Uh, the people who are who will benefit from right to repair, this is basically legalizing things that are already happening. Right? Schematics are already making their way in, on, in the dark net, making their way around the world. What we need is, is the good guys to have access to the same information. So, and as you've gone through this whole kind of right to repair fight over the years, um, I see the argument a lot that part of the reason we need something like right to repair is that companies are deliberately making their gadgets that don't last as long and are harder to repair. Uh, and if I'm being honest, I just don't buy that. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I just don't think Apple is deliberately making your phone in a way that it will die in a year. I just don't. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. And and if, if I'm wrong, please convince me that I'm wrong. But like, do you, do you buy that argument that the companies that make these gadgets are deliberately doing this to us? It's really hard to say, you know, they're sitting in a smoke-filled room saying, okay, here's the special part that we're going to put in there that's going to fail at 13 <laughs> right. minutes. Right? Mwahaha. Uh, I, I, I don't think that it is a deliberate strategy of, of obsolescence in terms of like building in sort of death clocks into these devices. But I, I think that there is are things that they could prioritize that would dramatically extend lifespan if they wanted to. Like what? Uh, and well, the, the battery is, is the, the most obvious one because it's a consumable. Not being able to swap the battery in your car is like, or in, in your, in the battery in your phone is like not being able to swap the battery in your car or the tires in your car. You don't, you expect your car to last longer than the life of, you know, the shortest lived component. And we should expect our phones to last longer than the first battery. Having tried to fix my own phone without knowing what's going on, I can tell you it's a scary proposition, but things like I fixed it do help. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks to Kyle, Sarah, Anna Maria, and Joanna for being here. Thanks to Tanya, our producer, and Wilson, our editor. And most of all, thank you for listening. We have new episodes every Friday, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, if you have feedback or ideas, please email us at instantmessage at wsj.com. That address, I think, wasn't working for a bit, but I'm told it is now, so definitely say hi. We'll talk to you soon.